What we know from pandemics, where more people were killed by the so-called Spanish flu than died in all of World War I, what we know is that these pandemics tend to come in waves and that we should be preparing for a second wave. And if there's going to be a second wave, we and the Chinese should be cooperating. Hello, welcome to Cambridge Forum. I'm Mary Stack, and today we are inviting you to escape intellectually and immerse yourself in some US history for an hour. We're going to consider the ethical performances of numerous American presidents from 1945 to 2020 in regard to their foreign policies. And this will span the administrations from FDR to Trump. This huge and rocky period of historical terrain forms the subject of Harvard professor Joseph Nye's latest book, Do Morals Matter? Presidents and Foreign Policy from FDR to Trump, published by Oxford University Press. In addition to being one of the world's leading scholars of international relations, Joseph Nye served in prominent positions in both the Carter and Clinton administrations, so he is uniquely qualified to assess the performance of American foreign policy both as a thinker and a doer. I'm extremely honored to introduce Professor Joseph Nye. People sometimes ask me why I would write a book called Do Morals Matter with a question mark in the title. In fact, one friend, a woman said, uh, at least it'll be a short book. (laughs) But uh, the conventional wisdom is that morals are not that important. It's all national interest. Sometimes you put it, national interests bake the cake, and then politicians come along and sprinkle a little bit of moral icing on it to make it look pretty. I'm arguing that, in fact, if you have that cynical view, you're going to get history wrong. That, in fact, morals and the moral views of the presidents were critical ingredients to the cake that was baked, not just icing sprinkled on top. And it's very relevant to where we are now with this current COVID crisis. Uh, Everybody's saying borders are back. Uh, You know, you can't worry about other people. Uh, To put it in Donald Trump's terms, it's America first. And certainly a politician, particularly an elected politician in a democracy, has to put the interests of his or her people first. Uh, That's why they were elected. They they have a role as a trustee or a fiduciary. But uh, it's one thing to say national interest first, say Macron would say France first. Uh, But it's another thing about how you define the national interest. And that's where the moral element comes in. How broadly or how narrowly do you define it? I've sometimes used a a little example of uh, Imagine you were sitting on the beach reading a book, uh, a good book, and you were deeply engrossed in it. You're about to finish a chapter, and somebody in the surf cried, help, help. Uh, Would you put down the book, or you say, no, I really want to finish this chapter? Of course, you'd put the book down, and you'd jump in if you could and save them. But imagine that instead of hearing, help, help, uh, you heard, ayudame, ayudame, or from some foreign language. Would you say, oh, it's not an American, Um, I don't have to, I can finish the chapter. Of course not, you put down the book and try to save them. And in that sense, 
you know, we all are cosmopolitans and national at the same time. This view that it's either one or the other is wrong. Humans are capable of concentric circles of moral feelings and community. Uh, and they basically, you can both feel strongly in favor of your own nation and feel a sense of common humanity at the same time. Now, it's true that loyalty to your own may have a moral component to it. Suppose that uh, you heard the cries for help. Uh, you looked down and there were two children drowning in the surf, uh, equally distant, but one of them was yours and the other was not. Would you feel that morally you had to flip a coin to decide which one to save? Of course not. The fact that you were a parent brought in another moral obligation. That child had an expectation, a moral expectation of you, which was in additional to your obligation to humanity as a whole. So yes, there are different circles and the national circle may be closer or inner more. It doesn't mean that we ignore those older circles. And that means that in a time like this, it's not establishing borders that totally exclude the rest of the world. It's bringing out reasonable ways to combine our moral obligations. I'm going to come back to this at the end of my brief talk. But first, I want to say that uh, what we're seeing today is a president who has taken an extremely narrow definition of American interests and America first. If you, I look at 14 presidents since 1945 in the book, and if you go back to the earlier presidents like Franklin Roosevelt or uh, Harry Truman or Dwight Eisenhower, they were basically uh, defining the American national interest to promote our interests, but in ways that could help others as well. The Marshall Plan uh, to help revive Europe after World War II is a, is a good example of that. It was good for us, but good for others at the same time. The other thing in the book that, uh, in looking at the 14 presidents, that's it, worthwhile to note is that often these moral decisions were crucially important. Uh, I've, I use the example of Harry Truman uh, to illustrate this in nuclear weapons. Many people uh, condemn Truman morally for having dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, what they don't realize is that there was a third bomb and that Truman, when he discovered how bad the effects of nuclear weapons were on humans, told the military they couldn't drop the third bomb. And he said, I'm not going to kill any more women and children. But even more important, five years later, when Truman was stalemated at losing the war in Korea, after the North Koreans had swept down the peninsula and the Chinese came in behind them, uh, and we were almost at risk of being driven off the Korean Peninsula. General MacArthur, the commander in the Asia, uh, said that if Truman gave him permission to drop 25 to 40 atomic bombs on Chinese cities, he could win the war. And Truman said no, even though he knew that if he stalemated or lost the war, it would cost him his presidency. That was a tremendously important decision based in large part on moral grounds. And imagine if he had not decided it that way. Think what a different world we'd be living in if in fact nuclear weapons were treated as normal warfighting weapons rather than as just for deterrence purposes. 
So in that sense, uh, the moral decision that Truman made was critical to the type of world we live in today, not simply icing sprinkled on the cake. But as you mentioned in introducing me in the, in the book, having demonstrated by looking at the 14 presidents that morals did matter, I then say, how do we think about it? Well, it's not as easy as we first say. Uh, very often people will say, well, you know, if a president says nice things about freedom and, and uh, democracy and so forth, that's moral. Well, no, uh, you can have good intentions and terrible immoral consequences. And I'll give you, an, again, a simple little example. Imagine that um, your daughter was at the high school dance and had SAT exams tomorrow morning, and a friend said, oh, I'll pick her up and drive her home, and I'll make sure she gets home quickly and early so she's rested for the exams. And your friend then uh, doesn't notice that the road has become icy, uh, drives at 80 miles an hour, and uh, skids off the road, hits a tree, and your daughter is killed. Would you say, oh, but his intentions were good? Of course not. You say this is a horrible, inappropriate use of means, inappropriate means with horrible consequences. There was culpable negligence, and it led to basically something that uh, we would not tolerate in terms of the consequences. So uh, in that sense, uh, if you could take it and apply it to something like the invasion of Iraq in 2003, George W. Bush said that he wanted uh, to uh, get at the roots of terrorism in the Middle East by bringing democracy to the region. So he was going to overthrow Saddam Hussein, which was done relatively easily, and then was going to democratize Iraq, which of course didn't happen. And you might say, well, but his intentions were good. Ari Fleischer, who was Bush's press secretary said, well, you have to admire Bush's morality because yeah. of his moral clarity. And what I would say using that example of the road accident uh, is not at all. You would say whatever his intentions, he also produced terrible consequences. The, the strengthening of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which only led to the rise of ISIS, the Islamic State, with uh, horrendous consequences. And so we would say, no, uh, failure to do due diligence and culpable negligence and immoral act. So that's an example, if you want, of three-dimensional morality. We can't look just at intentions. We also have to look at the means and the consequences. Now, uh, let me apply this to the, our current crisis with coronavirus and COVID-19. Basically, what I see in the reactions of President Trump and the United States is an inadequate appreciation of the need to cooperate with others. It's interesting, you can blame the Chinese, indeed they deserve a good deal of blame, with their authoritarian system closing down information, preventing early enough warning of what was going to happen as a result of this virus in Wuhan. Uh, and then after that, they turned to a propaganda campaign to try to make themselves look benign. But then we replied by talking about the China virus. And Secretary of State Pompeo prevented the group of seven from reaching a communique about cooperation because he wouldn't agree to anything that didn't pin it strictly on the Chinese. These, I think, are the wrong ways to approach it. 
What we know from previous episodes of pandemics, uh, 1918 being the probably the most dramatic in the last century, where more people were killed uh, by the so-called Spanish flu than died in all of World War I, what we know is that these pandemics tend to come in waves and that we should be preparing for a second wave. And if there's going to be a second wave, we in the Chinese should be cooperating, not gaining in propaganda wars and slanging matches. For example, uh, the Chinese have a lot of knowledge and evidence of what the early stages look like. They've done a lot of work on the virus itself. They're big producers of medical equipment and, and uh, personal protection equipment. So there's a lot to be said for cooperating there. But there's another dimension of cooperation, which I would flag to go back to my point about what's the national interest or not. One of the probabilities, we can't know it for sure, is that this virus may have a seasonal fluctuation. Uh, with warmer temperatures in the northern hemisphere, the virus may migrate to the southern hemisphere, and uh, then with the temperature reversals uh, six months later, could migrate back up to the northern hemisphere. In other words, you might have a reservoir of, uh, of coronavirus in a set of countries, many of which are too poor to be able to provide the public health measures that they need. It would very much be in our interest to join with the Chinese and the Europeans and others to create a massive COVID virus fund under the United Nations to help these poor countries to cope with it. And you'd say, well, why, when we're pressed so hard for funding at home, why don't we, in fact, just think of our own needs and not worry about this? And the answer is a little bit like the Marshall Plan, which is we would do it because it is in our interest. We don't want a surge coming in the, up from this reservoir of, of uh, Southern Hemisphere virus uh, in the, uh, coming back north. So in that sense, it's self-interest. But it's also humanitarian interest. There are a lot of people who can't cope and who we can help without losing our capacity to help ourselves. And that's, of course, what the Marshall Plan was about in 1948. So, yes, morals do matter. And it doesn't have to be put into, should I act morally or should I act in the national interest? It all depends on how you define the national interest, how broadly or narrowly you define it. And I last feel that we've been defining it in very narrow terms in recent years. And it's time to us to return to the presidents who I look at in the early part of the book, Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, who took a broad definition of American national interests that was good for us, but good for others as well. And to me, that's the important example of morals being critical in foreign policy. Anyway, let me stop there and see what other people think. Okay, um, I have opened up, there's, the Q&A is open, but I'd rather people type their questions into the chat. So first of all, you say that as a nation, you mentioned, we haven't dedicated a lot of serious attention to investigating moral values. And you talk about the actual dearth of titles that really, of books even, that address this topic. So I guess, my question is, when did morals become so unfashionable? And when did all this change? Well, in the 19th century, Americans saw themselves as very moral. 
uh, we this is sometimes called American exceptionalism that uh, we'd broken off from Britain so that we could worship the Lord in a purer way, the Puritans, and therefore we were better. And uh, that sort of moralism uh, was very fashionable. And it, it characterized American foreign policy in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, Woodrow Wilson was often called moralistic. The net result of that was that the United States didn't do, we talked a good game, but we didn't do what we needed to do to stop Hitler and genocide and the horrors of World War II. So in the aftermath of World War II, there was a whole school of thought, which was well represented by George Kennan, the famous American diplomat who invented the doctrine of containment, saying America had to drop this moral view that this was this was hurting us and hurting others and uh, they condemned American moralism. So in the 1950s or so if you were going to graduate school and studying international relations uh, any reference to morals or moral morality was a, a no-no and it's gradually uh, changed over time but uh, it was a reaction to the 30, 20s and 30s I'd say. Now, I know you say these things go in waves, but I remember noting when I was teaching um, after Bush taking the country to war illegally, it felt to me like there was a general kind of degradation in conduct that I even saw in young people. But do you think there is a trickle down effect? If you've got immorality at the national level, do you think it it permeates into everyday conduct. I think it does have an effect. I mean, the, the causes of changing morality are, are multiple and uh, you know, it, it's not just the internet, it's not just Trump, it's not just generational change, uh, there are multiple causes. Uh, but uh, the, the person in the society who has the, the, uh, the, the best bully pulpit, as Teddy Roosevelt called the presidency, uh, is indeed the president. And if the president is not paying attention to morality or setting a bad example, uh, that is noticed, or, or putting it another way around, more people will notice that immoral behavior than anybody else's. And that's an interesting uh, example. This is not a partisan comment. I, I've always, I never didn't agree with John McCain's politics, but I've always admired the fact that when he uh, was running in 2008 against Obama, and one of the people in his audience said, uh, oh, Obama's a Muslim and we shouldn't vote for him. And McCain said, no, stop. He's an honorable man. I disagree with him, but we're not going to characterize people by such terms. We're going to deal with their ideas and issues. That's the kind of moral statements you want to hear from a president. Uh, it's not the kind of moral statements we're hearing from this president. Indeed not. Well, Howard Gardner has typed a question in here. I'm going to read it to you. Very good to past Cambridge Forum speaker himself. He says, you focus on presidents. Can you talk a bit about different forms of government, both in parliamentary democracies and in more top-down forms of government, a la Machiavelli, and the extent to which morality figures in decisions and, acts and actions? Well, it's a very interesting question, Howard, and, and uh, it, it's true my book is 
about American presidents because I wanted to restrict the sample to a group in which I could say, looking at all 14 presidents, did morals matter or not matter? If I, otherwise I could be accused of just cherry picking from randomly around the world. But, but obviously uh, the same sets of questions make a, uh, can be raised for any political system, whether it's a parliamentary democracy or even a, uh, uh, an autocracy of sorts, which is to what extent are people uh, being judged by their intentions, their means they choose and the consequences they have. I think that can be applied anywhere. I've often been uh, torn though to take a concrete example of this is in 2015 when Chancellor Angela Merkel uh, faced with this influx of a million Syrian refugees swarming into uh, Europe. Uh, and she made a statement saying, we can handle that. And the, and I remember thinking at the time, uh, you know, this is an extraordinary statement. She's the daughter of a Lutheran pastor in East Germany who grew up under a very repressive system. And she made a, 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 a sort of a statement which was similar to Martin Luther's, um, I can do no other, a very, uh, 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 a, a type of moral statement which is not thinking about consequences. Uh, and at the time I thought, you know, good for her. She's redeemed uh, my view of what Germany has done in the past. But it's interesting to note that one of the consequences was to weaken uh, the uh, conservatives who in her own party and to open the doors for the party called the Alternative for Germany, uh, AFD, uh, which is a right-wing uh, neo-Nazi type party. And my German friends tell me that, uh, yes, they admire Merkel's moral stand on the refugees, but they wish she'd done it in a, in a slightly different way with more attention to the consequences on German politics over a longer run. There are hard calls like this, and they're true whether it's a presidential system or a parliamentary system. It is going to be interesting. You raised the issue this morning about uh, earlier about the COVID pandemic and how various governments are dealing with it. Can we employ your three measures in a country, say China, where you could argue, well, this is our agenda. These are the means we employ and we're willing to take the consequences because they don't tally with our American values. So it's very hard to judge um, whether somebody's doing the right thing if the right thing is expediency and uh, looking good. If that's your most important, your prime consideration as a country, looking good to the world rather than cooperating or admitting. I thought it was rather interesting that China apparently is helping us out, which on one level you think this is remarkably wonderful humanitarian assistance. And then you see today in the New York Times, it's really a diversion away from the actual statistics of what's going on in the, their own country. So you, you, it's hard not to be cynical. Well, that's true, but it's also worth, I, I've just written a, column this week for Project Syndicate, which says that both 
Chinese and American leadership have failed the COVID test. Uh, it's interesting to see the parallels between an authoritarian and a democratic system. Uh, the first reaction to both uh, Xi Jinping and Trump was denial. It's not real, it's not serious, it'll go away. And that meant they lost the time they needed to do the careful testing and process tracing, which would have meant isolation in a less costly way. China then went to uh, isolation of Wuhan and then claims that it stamped it out, but uh, uh, many people, including the CIA, uh, believe that these Chinese numbers are political numbers rather than real numbers. And then China and the US both got into a slanging match about who was wrong, who was right. And I mentioned this earlier that uh, uh, a foreign ministry spokesman in China talked about the American military bringing the virus to mm -hmm. using to sign a, a G7 communique, blame China for the, for the virus. Uh, this type of thing inhibits communication. I mean, inhibits cooperation. But if I'm right about new waves, uh, we're going to need, both the US and China are going to need to learn to cooperate. And so I hope that, uh, that we will both learn uh, that the consequences, the highly immoral consequences of the way we've treated it, in, of our leadership has treated it in its early stages in both countries. Uh, nonetheless, I think that, uh, I mean, the Chinese are making major efforts to so-called mask diplomacy uh, to pose as benign. Uh, but the authoritarian system, which suppressed information uh, for over a month, uh, was not at all benign. And you can't make up for that now by simply donating a lot of face masks. And similarly, the United States, uh, Trump says, well, I cut down on flights from China, but then he wasted the next month and did nothing about uh, uh, preparing for the spread. Uh, so I think both leaders have uh, should be judged as as putting their self-interest first and not the benefit of their people or broadly of the planet. And uh, the reason I wrote this column was a, a plea for on round two, which I'm afraid we face, uh, let's do better. Okay, we have one last question from an anonymous attendee. What opportunities do you see for the emergence of more moral leadership in the present COVID crisis? Well, I think we have noted that there are people who do place truth and evidence uh, above self-interest. Everybody extols the fact that Dr. Fauci uh, science. I mean, he has to be careful. <laughs> nonetheless, uh, doesn't say things that are unscientific. And uh, I think also we had another, if you want, lesson in civics during the impeachment hearings when people like Fiona Hill, uh, who had served on the National Security or Colonel Vindman, who served in the White House, and basically were willing to risk their careers by telling the truth uh, rather than succumbing to what was opportunistically in their interests. And I, I was interested that that lesson uh, of civic virtue and the importance of truth 
was taught to the American people by civil servants. Uh, one, uh, basically somebody who uh, had worked in the intelligence community and then the Brookings Institution, and the other who was served in the American military. And interestingly enough, both of them were immigrants mm. who actually believed what the American idea is about. So I think there is a prospect for returning to, to a, a more moral situation. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to everybody for listening and chiming in. And the book uh, we were discussing is Do Morals Matter? Presidents and Foreign Policy from FDR to Trump. Cambridge Forum is made possible through the generosity of Herbert and Dorothy Vetter. It is also sponsored by the Lowell Institute, the Massachusetts Cultural Council, Harvard Bookstore, and First Parish Church in Cambridge. Thanks to all of you for joining us today online, and we'll do this again soon.